Stay standing and let's take our Bibles out and open up God's Word to Romans chapter 7 this morning. We'll read the first 12 verses and then get into what God has for us this morning. So good to open up God's Word together and to be fed from it. Romans chapter 7, we'll begin in verse 1. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive, but if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Our God and Father in heaven, we thank you for your word which is Uh, holy and righteous and good to it in all of its parts, uh, which you have given to us for our good, for our instruction, Lord. And we pray that you would help us this morning as we look at these things. Help us, Father, to be further instructed in, in your way, in your law, in our knowledge of our weakness and and thereby uh, the, the knowledge of the greatness of your love and grace toward us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. So we are continuing this morning, our working our way through Romans chapter 7, which is part, remember, of this section dealing with objections or questions raised by Paul in regard to his teaching on justification. We're continuing to work our way through that, and we've got another week or two doing that before Paul will be coming to the end of this little parenthetical section in chapters 5 through 7 and and get back then, I'm sorry, 6 through 7, and then get back to the the topic uh, that he left off in chapter 5 as he goes on in chapter 8. Specifically, Paul is dealing here with the Christian's relationship in chapter 6 with sin and in chapter 7 with the law, our relationship with the law. And each section that we've been looking at has been occasioned by a statement that was made in the previous section. 
So, for example, at the end of chapter 5, Paul said, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And that raised a question that Paul deals with. The question was, then should we as Christians, if, if grace abounds more where there's sin, should we as Christians continue to sin so that grace has ever greater opportunity to shine? And of course, Paul answered that that is an absurd question even to contemplate We as Christians, he explained, we have died to sin, died completely and forever to it as a controlling force in our lives. When we are united to Christ, we are disunited from sin. We're united with Christ, Paul said, in in his death, in his burial, and in his resurrection. We have a share in the various aspects of his work, and so the relationship that we used to have with sin is gone. We have died to it. And because of that, he says in chapter 6, verse 14, sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. Well, that statement raised another question. The question was, are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? Since we are free from, the, from sin, can we continue to go on in sin? Since we are not under the law, can we continue to sin? And again, the answer was, by no means. He said in the second half of, of chapter 6 there that as Christians, people freed from the tyranny of sin and of the law are freed into the glorious freedom not of serving ourselves and certainly not of serving sin, but now the freedom of serving God. Paul said everybody serves someone. And Paul explained that the one that you yield yourselves to demonstrates who you are serving, whether sin or righteousness, God or yourselves. And he urged us in that passage to live like what we are, people who are dead to sin and servants, slaves of God. As we moved on then into chapter 7, Paul has taken up the subject uh, of our relationship to the law of God. So he had our relationship to sin and now our relationship to the law. And he showed us that just as we've died to sin, so we have died to the law. That as sin is no longer our master and cannot condemn us, so the law is no longer for us as Christians a source of condemnation. We have died to the law and we have been married to Christ. And there as well, Paul urged us that since that's taken place, since that, is, that true statement is a true statement, since we have been released from the law as both a curse because of our inability to keep it and as an external master over us, we, beloved, must live like what we are. Those who serve God by the Spirit. Those whose obedience comes from the internal working of the Holy Spirit and not any longer an external burdensome yoke of dominion under the law. Although it is to that very law that we go, we still look to see how we are to serve God. So Paul has spoken uh, quite strongly about the place of the law. He's emphasized that we are freed from the law, that we are not under the law. And that leads us then to another question. 
a conclusion which some might draw from what he has been saying. And that question is going to be our topic this morning here in the middle part of chapter 7. And the first thing that we're going to see just very briefly is the question concerning the law that he brings up. And the question is this in verse 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? There's the question. And that arises from what Paul said back in verse 5 of chapter 7. He said, For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Remember, we noted the the oddness of that statement and, and looked at it and explained it, and we'll continue to do that this morning. But Paul said that, that in some way the law stirred up in us our sinful passions, our sinful desires. And if not caused, it seems that it certainly contributed to us sinning more and more. So if the law has caused that or has, has contributed to that, if we are better off because we are no longer under the law, then what does that say about God's law? His commandments, uh, the teachings of Jesus and the apostles about how we are to live as Christians. And Paul puts the question very bluntly, And very graphically. Because notice, he doesn't say there in verse 7, what then shall we say that the law is sinful? That's not what he says. He says, is the law sin? Is the law an evil, an evil thing? Well, as we might expect, the initial answer, and remember that's been Paul's pattern, right, through all of this, question, brief answer, usually started with what we see here, a a God forbid, by no means, and then he expands, he gives a fuller answer, and that's what he does here. The answer, the initial answer, quickly and strongly comes back, is the law sin? Paul says, nope, no way, by no means. Again, this is the strongest way he could put this. Perish the thought, God forbid, And then again, as I mentioned, as he's done throughout chapter 6 and into chapter 7, he doesn't leave it at that, but he goes on then to express in more detail the answer to the question. So if you notice the title for this morning's sermon, it's called An Apology for God's Law. That doesn't mean we're going to be asking for forgiveness for it. We're not going to be ashamed of it. But to say an apology for God's law... I take that from the Greek word apologia, which is where we get the word apology, but it means a defense. And so Paul is going to give to us a defense of God's law. And he's going to point out, and he begins by pointing out, some of the the positive functions of the law. Or should I say one of the positive functions of the law, of the moral law we're particularly talking about this morning. Uh, Before we get into it here, remember last week we talked about three types of law, three categories of the law that we find in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament. There was the moral law, and the ceremonial law, and the civil law. Well, students of Scripture have also identified what they call three uses of the law, that is of the moral law in particularly, the, the reformer's 
really crystallized this, especially Calvin really crystallized these uses of the law, these three uses of the moral law. The first use is that the law gives to us the knowledge of sin. And thereby, it condemns us as sinners. It shows us our need for pardon. Because, for example, in Romans 3.20, Paul says through, well, says, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But in Romans 4.15, he says that the law brings wrath. Why does it bring wrath? Because it reveals to us God's commandments and the fact that we do not keep them. Galatians 3.22 says that Scripture has shut up all men under sin. That first use of the law is that which condemns sinners and shows them their sinfulness, shows them their need for Christ. There's a second use of the law, and in that second use, the law is seen as restraining evil, sometimes called the civil use of the law. As we know, God's law... Uh, is the basis for, for laws throughout the nations, for systems of civil law throughout time and throughout the world. And as the, law, and as the work of the law is written on all men's hearts, Romans 2.15 says, accusing or excusing them, the, the law of God works through those two things to restrain evil. The person on the street, being a Christian or not, knows that it is wrong to kill someone. And as our laws have been set up, reflecting that, that it, there, are, there is a restraining work of the law in the laws of our land, even. God's law, in the second use, gives a threat of judgment and gives categories of acceptable and unacceptable behavior. The third use of the law... Uh, the one that Calvin said was the primary use of the law, is that the law instructs us as believers. This is sometimes called the moral use of the law. And this is for believers only. This is the, the use of the law that, that shapes our lives as Christians. That we've, we go to and say, we've been freed from sin, we are rescued, and now then how should we live? When we hear God's law as redeemed people, we are witnessing the third use of the law. We, for us as Christians, this is the primary use of the law. One thing that the law does not do is that it does not give us the ability to fulfill it. It doesn't give anything. It only requires But part of what the law does is that, and this again is the first use, is that it reveals sin. And that's where Paul goes first. first, Our first point this morning was the question. uh, The second point that we have is that the law reveals sin. The law reveals sin. Paul says in verse 7, What shall we say then that the law is sin? He says, By no means. Then he says, Yet... Or probably a, a better translation there is, on the contrary. So is the law sin? No, on the contrary, actually, in fact, he says, I would not have known sin, or if, I, if it had not been for the law, rather, he says, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. 
So what's he saying here? Is he saying that there is no consciousness of sin at all? Uh, Any consciousness of wrongdoing without the Ten Commandments? No, that's not what he's saying. Is he saying that there's no sense of right or wrong in anyone apart from the commandments of God? Well, no, he's not saying that. Remember his discussion way back in chapter 2? That God implants the the knowledge of right and wrong on all men? Back in chapter 2, in verses 14 and 15, he says... It is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Then he says, for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. And notice what Paul says here, back in Romans chapter 7, in verse 7. He says, yet he doesn't say, if it had not been for the law, I would not have sin. He doesn't say that. He says, rather, I would not have known sin had it not been for the law. So it's not that there there is not violation, it's not that there is not wrongdoing, But he's saying that it's of a different nature when the law is present. This is the same thing he said, remembering again back to chapter 5, in verse 13, Paul said that sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted when there is no law. When man knows the law of God, when God has given it, when man hears it, when man reads it, What was simply wrongdoing now takes on the added dimension of transgression, of violating a known standard that has been given. Our catechism, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, uh, in answering the question, what is sin, notice what it said. It says, sin is any lack of conformity to or what? Transgression of the law of God. And then Paul gives a specific autobiographical example from his life here in verse 7. He says, If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. If I want what is yours, I may have a gnawing feeling, a guilty conscience, that that is not right, I may sense that there is something bad about me being unsatisfied with what I have and seeing what you have and wanting that, wanting your home or your car or your wife or your lifestyle. I could sense that that is wrong, but when I read, you shall not covet, then I say, oh yeah, this is not just vaguely wrong, it is contrary to God's written standard. It moves from being sinful to being sin, to being transgression. And this is a function of the law, to bring that out, to reveal sin as sin. And that's what Paul says here. I wouldn't have known 
sin. I wouldn't have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not do it. You shall not covet. By the way, what of Paul's choice of commandment there? There are ten. He chose the tenth to bring as his example. You shall not covet. Well, there is something unique about that commandment. It is the one commandment that is explicitly focused on internal activity as opposed to external activity. Now we know, in fact we read it this morning, didn't we, that Jesus taught that every commandment reaches past the external to to matters of the heart and matters of the mind, but the tenth commandment starts there. Coveting is done in here. And in here, it is a mental act of dissatisfaction and reaching out with desire for what someone else has. In fact, it is speaking of desire, inordinate desire, improper desire, desire broadly speaking. And it covers a whole whole gamut of of areas of things that you can be uh, covetous of. In fact... The Heidelberg Catechism sees in the Tenth Commandment that you shall not covet, it sees in that a summary of all of the commandments, as all of them can be seen as expressions of covetousness in some form. But the point is that as an answer to why the law is not a sinful thing, we must recognize that it is a good thing because it points out sin. And we need to have sin pointed out. We don't like it, but we need to have it. Before we are, 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 are Christians, we need to have it because without, as I say so often, without the law, there's no context for the gospel. Without the bad news, the good news isn't really good. We need to be brought low before the gospel can lift us up in Christ. It reveals sin. It reveals sin for the unbeliever, and it reveals sin for the believer. Now, the second aspect of Paul's answer is to point out that, and this is our third point, that the problem here is not the law, but the problem is sin. So is the law sin, Paul asks? No, because the problem is not with the law. The problem is with the sin. Look at verse 8. He says, But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. So here Paul is returning to that same idea that we looked at last week and and said it was kind of odd-sounding. This idea of of the law arousing passions within us toward sin. And Paul is saying here something very much along the same lines. He says, notice there in verse 8, but sin. Now stop there for just a second. Here's the culprit. You know, he says in verse 7, I would not have known sin without the law. I wouldn't have known what it is to covet. If the law had not sinned, you shall not covet. Then he goes on and says, but sin... And so the sin is the one who is, is the problem here. Sin, Paul says was seizing an opportunity through the commandment. So sin takes the commandment and uses it to its own purposes. 
In verse 5, he said that our sinful passions were aroused, were stirred up by the law. And that sin took advantage of the law, he says, and produced in me all kinds of covetousness. It took advantage of its position and like an enemy with the physical high ground just destroyed me, Paul says, in producing in me all kinds of covetousness, all sorts of sin. The word here in verse 8 talking about seizing an opportunity is a word that comes from the world of military campaigns. He's saying that sin set up a base of operations, a bridgehead. And from there attacked me. That from there misused the law. We spoke of it last week. You know, we said we're not exactly sure what the mechanism is on how the sin does that, but we, we landed on a particular concept, didn't we? We landed on a particular word and identified that operative word as rebellion. Our rebellion, sin works in our rebellion and causes us to rebel against God's law. It sets our rebellion on it, like setting a, a dog on a small animal. When we are told, don't do this, we talked about this last week as well, when we are told, don't do this, rebellion says, then do that. And that rebellion is so much a part of our fallen nature. That rebellion is such a part of our world today, of our culture today. Proverbs 22.15 says that folly is bound up in the heart of a child. Rebellion is a large aspect of, of folly. It's in us from, from our youth. And that rebellion in our society is so evident. Our society seems bent on excess for excess sake, perversion for, for perversion's sake. Our culture seems to ask, how can I thumb my nose at God? How can I spit in the face of the Creator? And open the paper any day of the week, look on your Twitter feed any time, and see the rebellion pouring forth in countless and more rebellious ways. When God says, you shall or you shall not, Sin takes advantage of that positive command of God and says to you, do the opposite. And Paul says that that's what it was doing in him. It produced in him all kinds of covetousness because it said, you shall not covet. All kinds of dissatisfaction with the things that he had. All kinds of desires. And our sinful rebellion, that is the problem, not God's law. Don't blame God. And he reiterates at the end of the verse, he says, for apart from the law, sin lies dead. Sin loses its rebellious aspect when there is no law to rebel against. So the law maintains the sinfulness of sin. And the problem is the sin, not the law. The next point that we want to see, and I want to change this for those of you who have it in your bulletins, it should say that the law opens our eyes to our sinfulness. Because now it's, it's, it's going to be more personal. Look at verse 9. You can see that it starts out personal. 
And in the original, this first word there is, is emphasized. He says, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. Now, I have to tell you that, that the opinions on this verse in the world of, of scholarship and, and commentaries and preachers is quite varied. Who is Paul speaking of here? And of what time period in his speaking? And we're going to see next week where that even gets worse. But it starts here in verse 9. This is a difficult uh, verse in a difficult passage. But what I think is going on here is that Paul is now giving to us a biographical example that, that, that he is referring to something that was true of him as an example of this. He is explaining how the law, remember, is not sinful, is not sin. He is explaining to us how the law functions as he moves toward his conclusion in verse 12. But to make this this easier, let me just give you the main point of the verse here, and that is this, that the law is not sin, but it's good in that it points out sin and it shows it for what it is and shows it how we are sinful people. By doing so, it shows us our state as rebels. Rebels against God's law as dead to sin. Remember, this is the first use of the law here. Paul says, I once was alive apart from the law. Well, that's a strange statement again. At one time in my life, here's what he's saying. At one time in my life, I thought I was doing well. You might think of uh, quotation marks around the word life. Or around the word alive. I was once alive apart from the law. I thought I was doing well in regard to the law because I didn't really understand what the law demands. And that's true, not just for him, but for everyone before the law is brought home to them and destroys that facade of self-righteousness. One commentator says that this is referring to the happy pagan, a deceived pagan who thinks he's doing well, who thinks he's doing pretty good, alive, at least as far as they evaluate themselves. And so Paul here, as he gives this autobiographical um, description, is also sort of representing all of us, because this is true of all of us. And Paul says that that life was apart from the law. That is, apart from knowing that full significance of the law. A supposed life when he was under no conviction of sin or an, a, a, an external-only conviction of sin. Remember even Paul's evaluation of his life as a Pharisee in Philippians chapter 3. He said, as, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. I'm doing it. Or as he writes that, he said, I thought I was doing it. Pulling off what he thought the law required. Just as the Pharisees, of which he was one, I thought they were pulling off what the law required. That was the same attitude, remember, of, of the 
the rich young ruler in Mark 10, who after Jesus began to speak with him and listed many of the commandments, the man said, what do I need to do to have eternal life? Well, Jesus says, the law says, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear false witness, don't uh, or honor your father and your mother. And what did the, the rich young ruler say? He said, all of these I have kept from my youth. Really? And remember that it just took one sort of follow-up question from Jesus to destroy that man's delusion. And many people today are, are happy pagans. They think do not murder means just do not murder. When we read this morning that it means do not hate, do not be angry. At that time, as Paul speaks, before he was converted, he was a happy pagan, a very religious happy pagan. But, he says, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. When the commandment, when the the law of God was driven home to Paul in all of its stringent, absolute requirements and in its spiritual as well as its physical aspects, and when God, the giver of that law, brought Paul to a true understanding of the law, it was then that Paul says that the commandment came to him. When the commandment came, when I understood what the law means, what it says, what it commands. When that happened, Paul says, sin came alive and I died. Sin came alive. That is when I really saw and understood God's law, then I really understood my sin. I understood that I wasn't doing so well. My sin, he says, literally sprang to life. It sprang before my eyes. I saw it. And this must be the the beginning of the converting work of God in Paul's life, showing him just how bad of a sinner he was. You know, we know from Acts 9 and 21 and 26 that Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus, like all conversions are in truth, was sudden and dramatic. What we don't know was how God may have been working in Paul prior to that day on the road to Damascus. And this may give us some insight here. At some point, the authority of the law was pressed on him, and then he understood his sin, and as the work of the law, the first use of the law was being performed, it killed off happy pagan Paul. The weight of the requirements, and this has to be for everyone, the weight of the requirements of the law crushed his self-righteous fantasy. So that he says here, I died. Died to my thought that I was alive somehow. I realized that I was dead in my sins. And that's true for all of us. That is what the law does. And again, that's the point. That is how we know the law is not sin. When the law is understood, it awakens in us the sinfulness of sin. And at that point, we can realize our state. And the person who thought they were alive realizes that they are dead. The law, far from being sin, opens our eyes to our own sin. 
fifth thing is that the law cannot give life. Again, this is not the fault of the law, but it's the fault of our inability to keep it. It's the fault of our sin. That is what necessitated God sending His Son into this world. So that there would be a fountain from which to draw the obedience that we on our own could never provide. The righteousness of Christ that we talk about every week. But again, the problem Paul is saying is not the law. Look at verse 10. He says, the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. The commandments themselves held out the promise of life. Jesus asked an expert in the law, what's written in the law? To which the the man answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus answered him this way. He said, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Do this and you will live. That's what the law says. That's the promise that it holds out. But Paul goes on to say that that commandment, that that law that promised life, what? It proved to be death to me. Why is that, Paul? Is it because of an inability or a weakness in the law? No. Is it because of a change in the standard of God? By God? No. In Romans 8.3, Paul will summarize this. And we can sneak a peek there to see the answer. Verse 3 of chapter 8 says, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. See, it could not give life. It can promise life, but it can't give life. Not because of anything wrong with the law, but because of that that is wrong with us. The law is not weak in itself. It is not deceitful in itself. It is not sinful, as verse one or 7 asked. But here is why, and this is very similar to what we saw back in verse 8. Look at what he says in verse 11. He says, For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. He's just repeating kind of what he's been been saying. Sin, again, seized an opportunity. Sin, again, set up that base of operations, that bridgehead against him. He says, it deceived me. Now, that's slightly different than earlier in the chapter. In verse 8, sin produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Here he says that it deceived me. Now, we haven't talked a lot about it, but in the book of Romans, Paul very often gives us echoes of the creation and of the fall. And he does that here, this idea of, of deception, of deceiving. This is an echo of how sin got its first bridgehead, its first base of operations in humanity, in the garden. It deceived our parents, our first parents. Genesis 3.13, particularly there the woman that the serpent deceived me, and I ate. Hebrews 3.13 speaks of the deceitfulness of sin. And that's what sin does. It deceives, doesn't it? It holds out the pleasures of sin for a season. 
without letting slip that that season will come to a swift and tragic end at the time when the sinner will receive, instead of the, the, the joy, instead of the pleasures, it will receive the wages of sin, which is death. Sin deceives in that it says, it says the same thing that the serpent said in the garden, doesn't it? It says, God, God's holding out on you. God is holding back the good. It says that God is not giving you the best. It is not, he is not giving you what you deserve. He is not giving you what you need, uh, what, what you feel is your right to have. And thereby it, it deceives into thinking that it is good to sin, that it is better to sin, that it is your right to sin because God's just keeping things back from you. That it's cool, that it's self-affirming to disobey God. And thus, Paul says, through it, that is through the law, the law corrupted, the law hijacked, the law taken advantage of, the law used for sin's own nefarious purposes. He says, through that, the law killed me. Sin offered a velvet glove and delivered an iron fist. Because the wages of sin is death. And it doesn't present the wages of sin. It offers the pleasures of sin. And that all brings us to Paul's evaluation of the law in verse 12. Because here then Paul comes to finish the answer that he began back in verse 7. The answer to the question is the law of sin. He said, by no means. And now he says in verse 12, so the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good, evidenced by everything in between. The law, God's law, his moral law, in its entirety, Paul says, is good. The law is holy, he says. And the commandment, every individual part of that law, every individual aspect of it, it, Paul says, is holy and righteous and good. Now, I don't believe Paul is saying here that what it commands is holy and righteous and good, although it commands holy and righteous and good actions. But Paul is speaking of the nature of the law itself. And that we find by seeing and and reflecting for just an instant on the lawgiver. And I don't mean Moses. I mean the one that gave the law to Moses. God himself. The nature of God is that he is holy and he is righteous and he is good. And so his law that he gives must be holy and righteous and good. And Paul says it is. It is holy. It reflects God's character, which is holy. Therefore, the law is to be treated with the highest reverence. And it is like God's character, unchanging, always binding, always, excuse me, always relevant. So for a church to disregard the law of God is to neglect foundational understandings, foundational things that God's given to us. Because the law, the commandment is holy. And he says it is righteous. It is always the right thing. Because it comes from a God who is always right. 
God's law is not liable to any charge of wrong. Let God be true and every man a liar. Though we all disagree, though we all be on the wrong side of history, the ultimate judge is not history. The ultimate judge is God and his law. And it is just, and it is fair, as God is just, as God is fair. It is holy, it is righteous, and good. God's law is of intrinsic worth and worthy of all attention in the church. The commandments promised life, but by our sinning against it, it proved to be death for us. But this is not in any way the law's fault. God forbid, as Paul would say. The fault is with sin which dwells in us, with the sin that seizes that opportunity, sin that deceived us and killed us through the law. Sin is the one taking advantage of the law in order to slay us. And it is that that Christ has overcome. By fulfilling the law in our place and by dealing with our breaking of the commandments. And so we are able to say with the psalmist, Oh, how I love your law. The law is given, and it does its work. It shows its worth when it, empowered by the Holy Spirit, slays a sinner and shows him God's holiness and his own sin. When a happy pagan becomes to his own dawning sight a wretched sinner without hope and without life because it is then that the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ is seen as that flaming light, that ark of God to lift a sinner, to bear him above the just judgment of God. The law is good. And the law is God's means of showing us who we are and showing us how much we need Christ. Sinner, this morning you need Christ because you are a sinner. And he has given the gospel. He has given his son that whoever believes in him would have eternal life, would be forgiven for his sin. And to that we all say heartily, amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your law. We thank you for the goodness of it, that it reflects you. And we thank you that that it sees through all of the deception, that it sees through all all of our deception. And it brings us, as your Spirit uses it in our lives, it shows us where we stand on our own, and that is in a place of judgment. And therefore, it shows us our need, our need for Christ. But thankfully, and to the unending praise of your people to you, O Lord, that gospel has come to us, that Christ has come to us, that he has redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. We pray, Father, that we might rejoice in that. And we give you thanks always for it. 
In Christ's name, amen.